I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, poet Christian Wyman talks about his decade-long battle with cancer, confronting death, and how he's learned to embrace the unknown. Ultimately, we can't know anything concretely or ultimately or absolutely. There is this unknowingness that, that is with us all the time. And part of maturing is learning to see that as a gift rather than a torment. And later, faith, doubt, and some poetic clarity. Here's an obvious truth. I am somewhat ambivalent about religion, and not simply the institutional manifestations which even a saint could hate, but sometimes, too many times, all of it, the very meat of it, the whole God-bleeped shebang. From facing down death to rediscovering faith, poet Christian Wyman on the gift that comes with the unknowingness of life. That's coming up on Life Examined. When poet Christian Wyman was diagnosed with cancer at age 39, his prognosis was grim. He had a rare and incurable form of lymphoma and was given five years to live. Enduring countless, often painful treatments and trials, Wyman has beaten those odds. But his struggle with his disease and with despair defines his writing, poetry, and how he views faith, family, and the world. Death was never far from his thoughts. And that anguish of unknowing was a constant and dominant thought in his life. Like Wyman says, we can't know everything, quote, absolutely, concretely. And that acceptance, like a gift, has reframed his thinking and reignited his own Christian belief. The American poet Wallace Stevens once said that, quote, poetry is a means of redemption. And for Wyman, poetry is the art that sustains him and a source of inspiration in his life. An accomplished poet himself, Wyman has published several collections and personal essays. He's now a professor at Yale Divinity School. His latest collection of poems and personal reflections, which we'll discuss today, is titled Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair. Well, Christian Wyman, it's such a pleasure to have you back on Life Examined. Welcome. Thanks for having me back, Jonathan. I wanted to just check in on on how you have been over the last few years. I, I know that uh, you continue to live with this rare form of cancer. And I, since I've spoken to you, I know that you live in a place where treatments come online and they're ex- experimental and they change and some work and some don't. But but here you are having published a book. Um, and I, I how could you describe your health journey since we've spoken in the last two to three years? How How have you been? Well, I've had a really rough time. I wasn't sure I would see this book published. Um, I had it finished before I got so sick, but I thought it was um, over for me this spring. But I got admitted into this trial of this new kind of therapy called CAR-T therapy, and they take out your T-cells and re-engineer them genetically and then put them back in your body. It's very science fiction-y. And... um, I was the first person with my disease in the country to get it, to get this treatment, and, and it worked. And it's sort of an astonishing thing. It worked not, didn't just work, it worked completely. So I have a, um, a new lease on life right now. Hmm. How does it feel to live in that space where your life can be d- dependent upon a new scientific discovery or that you could be preparing to die and then there's suddenly a, a little bit of light that shines through a crack in the door and here you are. I mean, to me, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, that seems like a place that's very complicated. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's not easy. It, um, I thought I'd gotten used to it, um, but this time I was so thoroughly prepared to die that, that uh, it has been quite disorienting to come back and find myself plunked down right among all my old problems and insecurities and anxieties and necessities. And, and um, yeah, it's taken a while to, to get my mind reoriented to this new reality, which is the old reality. What does it mean for you when you say, I, I have been preparing to die? That to me is like a very... You know, it's a very strong and profound statement that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But for you, what what does that mean? Well, I read a lot 
of research this last time through about um, people near death and ways to die. And I've done a lot of thinking about this myself over the years, and I've witnessed the deaths of uh, family and friends, good and bad. And one thing that seems um, an unassailable conclusion is that people who die well, who die peacefully, who don't go um, ranting, raging against the dying of the light, actually, to use Dylan Thomas's poem, which he was he meant as a positive thing. People who manage to attain some sort of peace with death, um, they do a lot better for their families. Their families have a lot easier time uh, moving forward from that than if it's some traumatic, uh, anguished passing. And so I was very determined to... Um, make my death mean something in the lives of my families so that it it wasn't just this horrible uh, trauma that we all went through. And so that was part of, that, that was actually the whole part of preparing. That's what I was thinking about. I also, though, wonder what what preparing for death on a spiritual level would mean to someone like you. I mean, Death is a very uh, a very important topic on the show. We just did one recently discussing how in different religious traditions, say a, a Buddhist tradition, that you know meditators will prepare their whole lives for the moment of death, and many of them will die in meditation. And that that's that's the most important moment of life is the end of life. And for you as a Christian and somebody who thinks I think very mystically about questions of life and death, I mean, what what does death begin to mean for you? when you thought that you have edged closer to it? Well, I do not have the kind of comfort that um, people think Christians have of an afterlife um, wherein I basically continue some heightened version of this life. Uh, I think of it as a mystery. I think uh, I actually read the Bible to uh, say that it's a mystery and we're not meant to populate it with images or ideas of what that life is. At the same time, I do believe that there's a way of dying into life or flinging yourself forward into that unknowingness, um, which is sort of what I was talking about, about, about dying peacefully. Um, and I've witnessed it. I, my, my, I have an aunt who died that way. I wrote about it in a book called My Bright Abyss. And and she seemed to um, to live into her death, and she, she she reached up out of it and hugged us right as she died. Actually, and she had been comatose before that, and and you couldn't tell if she was conscious or not. She did not seem conscious, and yet she was making these doing these actions as if she was conscious. Um, but her last gesture was. Uh, a kind of fusion of love and letting go. They 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 were they were seamless and and um, yeah. I would love to to live in that way. I've seen other people um, die a quite different death, uh, horrible deaths. And you know, I'm not sure that it's um, a judgment on the person, actually, because a lot of that depends on the pain you're in. And if someone's in a lot of pain, that just affects so much of uh, the way you experience terror and the way you're able to hold on to whatever notions you had of life and death. And and um, that can really distort things. Mm. I, I, I loved what you said a moment ago about the the mysteriousness that 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 you still feel towards death, because I I. I, I can't encapsulate your spiritual journey as a Christian, but you know I know that you began your life in a Christian household and you had kind of fallen to atheism, but then arisen out of it. And I, I wonder how you could use that word mysteriousness or unknowability or I, terms that would resonate with you when you describe how you feel now towards a Christian faith, because I think a lot of us think that you know, it's it's that Christianity is there merely to provide answers, but not really to provide mystery or questions. Well, 
I think that's a misreading of Christianity. It's a very modern reading of Christianity, the, the kind of cultural Christianity that exists in the United States today is a, is a very modern invention, and, and it is not at all the case of the early church fathers or various theologians down through the centuries. Uh, they certainly didn't read, didn't think of Christianity as something that simply p- provided answers I always liked that phrase by Emily Dickinson, who was herself a tormented Christian or tormented atheist, however you you could define her either way. Um, She said, it is true that the unknown is the largest need of the intellect, but for it, no one ever thinks to thank God. And that's true. We don't ever think to thank God for the fact that ultimately we can't know anything uh, concretely or ultimately or absolutely, there is this unknowingness that that um, that is with us all the time. That it's 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 within everything we do and everything we know. And I think part of uh, maturing in life is learning to see that as a gift rather than a torment. For a lot of us, that it's simply a torment. And it was for me when I was young. It sometimes still is for me on bad days. But I think if you can learn to see that unknowingness uh, as a gift and can learn the ways uh, to receive it in your life, then it can translate into um, all, I mean, great riches in your life and in, in ways of acting with, in your own life, ways of relating with people, ways in which you do your work. I mean, I'm an artist, and so... Uh, it, it has certainly affected my work, and my work has led me to that conclusion. Can you go on a little further with that? And, and kind of, I, you've used to say a very provocative sentence to me, which is, you now think about God as, as a verb. And help me understand that and tie that into that question of, of, of mystery and living with those questions, and, and also this idea of a God in one again that that is you think of very differently now again as as a verb which i find so interesting yeah i mean i have said that that's by the way not certainly not my idea uh there are buddhist thinkers who have come to that conclusion there's a famous uh buddhist book called god as a verb um and there are christian thinkers who have come to it as well i think probably every tradition the mystics come to it and the mystics of every tradition uh tend to uh, overlap in essential ways and can understand each other pretty easily, I think. Um, But the first time that sort of dropped scales from my eyes was when I was in my 20s and someone said it to me and and, uh, I realized that I had always thought of God the way everybody thinks of God as this noun, this sort of in-stopped answer to things. And the way I experience God, by contrast, is in relationship, in activity, um, in making art, in relating with people, in experiencing the world, when I have some sense that my life is coextensive with the life outside of me, or that even nature is maybe looking back at me. I've defined it in the book as a kind of reciprocal seeing that uh, it's as if, not as if you merge with nature at all, but as if, as if it looks back at you. And, and you can have that feeling with a person, too. Um, uh, not as if they're just looking back at you, but as if your beings are somehow looking back at each other. Uh, or looking at a third thing, um, be it God or art or children or what have you, um, in a way that that unifies the the two of you. And I realize that that is, in my understanding of God, is in that action, in that activity, and not in what that activity points to. And I think Christianity, a proper understanding of Christianity, defines God as relation. That's why I think the Trinity is a very, very uh, crucial... Um, and genius uh, notion and true notion of how reality works. The, 
the notion that God is these three dimensions perpetually relating within uh, one entity. And, um, and so that he, he himself is an activity, a verb. And we experience him when, I mean, I hate that I just said him, actually. I, you get stuck with this language, but, but we experience God when we experience the nature of his relation within himself be it with the world, with people, with our work, whatever it is. But it's not a noun, it's a verb. Yeah. How does that understanding of God provide a framework to live, a framework to love, to um, have a sense of morality, if that's a word we want to use? I, that's where I'd love to hear from you about kind of what that, that very mystical understanding of a God, like where, where that takes one in a life. Well, that's sort of the ultimate way in which you define a life or operate. You operate under that um, knowledge, and it is, a, it is a kind of it's instinct or knowledge in you. But it's not averse to doctrine. Um, I think of doctrine as the sort of guardrails um, that... Uh, that keep the direction clear and pure, and and um, they keep you from, I guess, sort of spinning off into one belief and another, and 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 living in a way s- such that everything is so inchoate, so that you have no direction, and um, one day you believe this, and the next day you believe this, and the next day you believe this, and. I'm quite subject to that myself, and and I think the doctrine of Christianity, I've just named an essential in the Trinity, um, is not at all at odds with the kind of mystical vision that I articulated. I think it actually um, comes out of it and also uh, forms it, and there's a kind of reciprocal relation between those two as well. There's a great there's a great quote in my book. I don't have it um, in front of me, but it's from an essay that the Spanish philosopher Miguel de Unamuno wrote about Don Quixote, and he says that any theological community or environment in which heresy is not occurring constantly um, and being taken seriously and practiced is a place of utter sterility and uh, death. And and so I I like that notion that uh, I mean he places it within a context of like a theological school, so that there are these guardrails, these forms in which you in which you can think, but they aren't uh, constricting. They have to they they are responsive to the kinds of um, extravagant thought that they produce. One thing about your story that always has struck me very personally, particularly when I was reading your book and and being kind of reintroduced to your ideas and your biography, is that you were diagnosed with this form of cancer at 39, which is my exact age right now. And I, I think about where that diagnosis comes in in terms of an age or a stage of life. Like I I feel like right now in in my life, intellectually, I'm just kind of getting going or I'm I feel the clearest I ever have. And my body still feels very strong and I can go exercise all day long and hike mountains. And but I think about for you, when you try and make sense of that diagnosis at that age um, and where you were and, and what your life almost could have been like if it had not occurred, like how differently the, this branch might have taken you in these different directions. I know that's kind of an unanswerable question, but I, I wonder what it's like for you to sit thinking about that now and what this diagnosis has done to you and maybe the extent to which it has forced these questions upon you and changed the course of your writing and thinking in spirituality. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. There's, uh, it has definitely changed the course of my work and my life. I, I was very much like you. I, I ran six miles a day and 13 miles on the weekends and and was obsessive um, uh, about exercise and very disciplined. 
and have been my whole life. And that was a big part of my life. And I was very, very healthy when I found out that I had cancer. And yeah, I guess I have a couple of answers. I, I it, it definitely created a real sense of urgency. And so there were two books there. One's called uh, Every Riven Thing. It's a book of poems. And one's called My Bright Abyss. And both those books came out of that time. And they are um, just burning with uh, a need to find meaning and a need to find a way of surviving, even if I was going to die. Um, by which I mean a way of keeping my mind alive long enough to do what I needed to do. And and also a, a, a real desire to, to make faith more the center of my life, not to live it quietly, um, to bring it into my work, to bring it into my life. You know, I made, I made this change to go to Yale Divinity School for that reason. I'm, I'm the one who instigated that and made it happen. So that, that, would all, that all was uh, difficult, but in a way fortuitous. Um, uh, I will read a poem here in a minute where the, the line is, the concluding line is, loss is my gift, bewilderment my bow. And it took me a long time to see that loss as a gift, but, but it was. I mean, it was a brutal gift, but, you know, this kind of uh, suffering is coming for everyone. We just don't live as if it were. I mean, one of the things that, that when you enter the cancer land, uh, it seems, it begins to seem like everybody has cancer. I mean, the, the numbers are unbelievable. And I've been in, in three, four different hospitals now, Every one of these places is enormous, and they are filled with people in every room at every hour of the day. They're just, every one of these places, just thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And you figure out pretty quickly that you are not unique, and some people suffer a lot more than you do. And uh, that's a salutary realization. And I think... Um, we go through our lives sort of coasting from day to day and not thinking about what our ultimate concern is, to use Paul Tillich's useful phrase, you know, what, if you tracked all of your activities back and all of your, all the things you do and the things you say towards some ultimate concern, an ultimate end, what would that be? What do you most value in your life? And if someone were observing that, what would they see if, if, that you most valued? And I, you know, when I got my diagnosis, I did that in my own life. And, and I wasn't happy with what I saw because I, what I saw was what I valued most in the world was poetry. I wanted to, and being an artist, and, and it seemed corrupt to me. Ultimately, perhaps as corrupt as if I were just seeking money. Um, because I, I, I think that art can't be an end. It has to be a means to something. And, and so the illness was a great teacher in that way. You alluded to a few lines there that you said you might read for us, and I, I wonder if now could be a great, great moment for that. Yeah, this is actually, this book is called 50 Entries Against Despair, but there are actually 52 because there's a zero section at the beginning and a zero section at the end. And I thought I was finished when I wrote number 50, but it turned out I wasn't. But I have been obsessed for much of my adult life with the notion that I was going to reach a stage where it all cohered. And in fact, that word became important to me when I was young, and I use it again in this poem. Uh, I just imagined that somehow my existence and the existence of everything around me was going to cohere, and I was going to realize exactly what I believed and exactly who I was. And at some point, um, maybe actually with just the writing of this poem, at the end of this book, uh, I realized that that's just not going to happen. And this poem is called No Omen But Awe, which comes from Emily Dickinson. 
I thought it would all resolve one day in diamond time. Life like a gem to lift to the squint as through a jeweler's loop. I thought every facet and flaw, neither facet nor flaw in some final shine. Chance and choice, uncanny cognates, form, fate. Now I am here, no diamond, no time, no omen but awe that a whirlwind could in not cohering cohere. Loss is my gift, bewilderment my bow. that last couple of lines, loss is my gift, bewilderment is my bow, if I have that right. Can you, can you say a little bit, little bit more about that? That is, I, I find that very, very striking and, and profound. Um, well, I guess it's the, along the lines of what I was saying about um, seeing the illness as a gift in some way, learning to see that as a gift in some way, and also learning to see unknowingness as something that you should praise rather than uh, fight against. I remember a student of mine who had cancer, young woman, beautiful young woman. Um, we were talking once and she told me that she had just started to found herself praying one day, uh, thank you God for my losses, thank you for my losses. And the words just came to her, she didn't even think of it, she just found herself saying them. And I remember just being so struck by that. Uh, this, she was much younger than me, she's a very young person, um, dealing with a terrible cancer and and being able to say that. And I think it's a great um, realization. I was going to say wisdom, I was going to say courage, but it's not that quite. Uh, it's, a great, um, it's a great receptivity and acceptance. And, and uh, this poem, I guess, is an attempt, my own attempt to, to say something like that. It, it makes me think of, of a term that can be attributed to different people, but Carl Jung used it, which is the, the idea of, of a wounded healer, in a sense, that if there's beauty in pain, it's often that one then can be with another in pain on a level that can feel very real. And that I think being in pain gives one also a deeper understanding of the world and the people in it. And I think there's a lot of beauty in that too. Is that something that you you feel is true or think about ever? Yeah, I wouldn't want to idolize pain. Sometimes pain is just pain. Um, and it, will, it teaches you zero, nothing. And it's not your fault. Um, so I, I think there are times when pain can be a means of seeing and can clarify life and also uh, link us to other people. There are other times when it's just pain and, and just something to suffer through. I had an amazing experience when I was sick this last time because I had to, I had to be in Boston for five weeks and, and, and I could never be alone. And, so too, and my wife had to stay here for part of that time. She went back and forth a lot, but our kids were in school, so she couldn't come up to Boston the whole time. And, and my two friends came, and they're old friends, and... and um, and it was just astonishing the kinds of connection that we were able to have during those five weeks. It was as if everything was burned away and, and we were able to be intimate with each other in ways that had never happened and in some ways can't happen now. Um, and it was simply because of the um, what suffering had done. It has simply cleared a space in all of us. And, um, and you know, the space can't be 
pity. Um, if, if someone's pitying you, uh, well, that's going to prevent any kind of real communion. Um, so it had a lot to do with how they were, they were experiencing the situation as well. My friend Emily and I would, uh, every day we had a, a time when we would watch a show and have some ice cream together, and, and it was <laughs> right in the middle of the day, so it just seemed like the most decadent thing in the world to do. But it was, it was, um, it was lit with uh, meaning and uh, intimacy for both of us. Uh, we both read new poems to each other, which I'd never do. I hate doing that. And, 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 but I found it completely natural to sit there and read new poems to her in that circumstance. And it wasn't as if it was a, you know, we were responding critically or anything. We were just listening and saying something about the poems. And, and, um, well, that was a very intense experience for both of us, I think. And if you're just joining us on Life Examined here on KCRW, my guest this hour is Christian Wyman, poet, essayist, and professor at Yale Divinity School. We're discussing his most recent writing, which is called Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair. Still to come this hour, more on Wyman's Christian faith, as well as his belief and doubts. We'll be back after this short break. And if you're looking for a way to connect deeper with Life Examined, you can find us on Facebook. There's a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, where you'll also find our full archive of shows. And if you want to connect with me directly, I'm on Instagram at Jonathan W. Bastion, and there you'll find weekly videos and lots of other ways to stay connected to the show throughout the week. This is Life Examined on KCRW. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay close. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard the poet and essayist Christian Wyman vividly describe some of the pain and anguish he endured while he was in cancer treatment. Remarkably, he describes the suffering and loss he felt as a gift, a gift that allowed him to appreciate the love of friends and family and to explore his own thoughts and insights through his writings and poems. So what about Wyman's faith in Christianity? Has his illness led to an enduring and strengthened belief or prompted more doubt and questions? How does his faith align with his writing and poetry? Let's jump back into the conversation. I want to return to something you said about when you were, I think, experiencing a very, a very deep level of contemplation, that that poetry itself couldn't couldn't be the answer. That that couldn't be the only thing, and or the life of the artist. And but you know, here you are, of course, still writing incredible poems and using this vehicle, this art, as a vehicle for contemplation. But I I, I sense that. The relationship you have with it now ha- has changed. If I, if I'm listening to you correctly, that it's meaning something else, and I, I wonder if you could explain that to me as you know as we have this conversation together. Yeah, it's, it's a paradox. I think um, I did think that poetry was was everything when I was young. That I was going to um, write a great poem, and I really only wanted one. I thought one, you know, just just. <laughs> That, I, that you could set next to the greats. That's what I wanted. I, I felt judged by Shakespeare and Ben Johnson and John Donne and Emily Dickinson and Marianne Moore. And, and so I wanted one that could stand up to theirs. And, and I also wanted, I, I imagined that was a saving gesture. That would save me somehow. And what you're doing in that instance is trying to stamp yourself onto time. And it's... Uh, it's egoistic, and I eventually came to the conclusion. I came to the end of that. That's that's a dead end. Eventually, it will it will be a dead end for everyone. But um, the paradox, though, is that Wallace Wallace Stevens once said, "If you do not believe in poetry, you cannot write it." He was a famous atheist, but apparently converted on his deathbed. There's some 
controversy about that, but um, if you do not believe in poetry, you cannot write it. And what he meant by that is if you don't believe in poetry in just the way that I was talking about, that it will save you, that it will stamp you into time and, and that it will make the universe cohere somehow, that it somehow contains these mysteries. Um, you can't write it, and, and it's true, actually. If you don't, you have to act as if. Uh, you have to, even though I know that this is a dead end and, and that poetry is a means, in order to write a real poem, in that moment, you have to give everything, and, and you have to write as if um, nothing else matters but this. And I think it's, um, yeah, there's an there's a analog to faith there. Um, I think there's, there's a large element of uh, acting as if uh, in that instance as well. Even though you don't believe, even though it, this seems insane, even though uh, your whole mind tells you that you are pursuing a chimera, if you are going to have any experience of God, any genuine experience of God, you have to somehow act as if this is true. This is the most important thing in the world. And that's been my experience. And if you, if you can manage to do that, you can manage to write a poem. You can manage to have experiences where you do perceive God. Do you feel that now your writing is, is an expression of your faith or of spirituality. And I know that you've also talked about how you have been trying to read the Bible almost as, as poetry and that early versions of the Bible were, were written in verse and, and very poetical in that way. Is that, do you feel that that's, that that's a fair statement that I've offered you? Well, one third of the Old Testament is in poetry. Um, there's not any poetry in the New Testament except for some quotations of hymns. Um, there have been people who have aligned it as verse, but it certainly wasn't written that way, and, and it was written for very different reasons than the Old Testament. I find the Old Testament much easier to read, actually, because uh, I find the genre straightforward. The New Testament is, is um, uh, quite a lot more complicated in that regard because it is not written as literature, and it doesn't have aspirations to literature, although... Parts of it are beautiful, not in the way the Old Testament is, but there are parts that are, that are very beautiful. Um, but it's a fusion of fiction and history, and untangling those lines can be tough. It can be very tough uh, to figure out how you read it. And I am not reconciled. I'm not a very good reader of the New Testament. I've been thinking about writing a book about that, about um, what's it like to read the New Testament if, someone, if you're someone like me. There was something you said just a, a few minutes ago, too, about kind of your evolution as a thinker and, and as a poet that really that I wanted to hang on to, which is the idea of of permanence, permanence as as say a writer or as a person or as an ego. I like I think that this is this kind of kernel we all have in us which is that somehow there, there will be a part of us that lives on. And I think that, you know, we can talk about this at the level of you living on through your books or, or you know, or is, is more of a metaphysical idea as, as a soul that lives forever. But I think that it seems to me that ingrained in human psychology is this, want, this wanting to be forever or to be permanent or a legacy being alive. And I, I wonder how you make sense of that um, as a writer and as somebody who has stared death very, very closely in the face. Well, I think the reason that we want that is because we're given intimations of it. Uh, there's a kind of, we live in chronological time and it seems very linear, but then sometimes that time is interrupted with chirological time, kairos, and, it, and it's vertical. And it, and it seems to cut right into chronological time and suggest another dimension um, altogether different than the one we know, um, one in which time is not dominant, or there's a very different kind of time. Van Gogh used to say that time was in fact round, not linear, and that art was a way of teaching us to 
see and experience that. So I think we're given these intimations in our lives. That's, that's why it occurs to us that there is a different kind of time. There is a different kind of life inside of this life, perhaps not beyond it. Um, and I think that's why it occurs to us. Now, now I had the notion of literary immortality. Uh, I, I'm not hung up on that anymore. I've, I've done the very best I could in terms of going all in to what gift I was given. And, and I, can't, I can't control whether it is going to speak to the people who come after me. I just have no idea. And I'm not bothered by that. It can all vanish. And it was still a good way to spend a life. Um, and meaningful. Meaningful. I don't think that's the, the stamp of authenticity or integrity or, or worth that, that a work of art somehow survives. I, I don't know if this is something you would struggle with, but I, I feel that in a lot of the great wisdom traditions there is a notion that a higher way of being is an ego death of some level and that you've talked about you know the the christian tradition and the mystical aspect of it is one is is the is the experience as one of unity or unitive and and i don't know i i'm thinking about you wrestling with mortality and probably trying to continue to write and wanting to share and put yourself out there in these books, knowing that there maybe is a clock ticking down and how you wrestle with ego and egolessness. And I, I know that's kind of abstract, but maybe you can put some words to it. Well, I do think at the heart of the Christian tradition, uh, as at the heart of the Buddhist tradition, there is this uh, death of the ego, not me, but Christ in me, Paul says. And, even Jesus himself says, not him, but the Father in him. So there is that notion of the ego death, even within God. Um, so yes, I'm quite sure that uh, any kind of enlightenment or transcendence uh, depends upon um, overcoming the ego. Um, what that looks like? You know, I don't. It, I used to think that um, that it was a complete eradication of the self. That's what Simone Weil says: that every last scrap of the self has to be eradicated in order for God to be manifest in your life. And that seems to me masochistic um, or self-hating in a way. I think there's some uh, element of the self with a capital S, not the self that we as if we think of it in the sort of American culture, but the self uh, as uh, Buddhists have thought of it, as, as it's thought of in European um, philosophy, um, the Einsof, the, the more transcendent self. Um, something of, that's what I think of surviving when I think of uh, surviving the death of the ego, or that's what I think of as, in, as, as being enlightened. Um, but I'm not, I wouldn't hold myself up as a good example of that. I mean, I, I, I work all the time to kill my own ego. I mean, if I get a bad review, it still bothers me. And, you know, it's not like I'm this, this monk here, you know? Yeah. I, I, and I, I do want to ask, cause I feel like this tradition has come up now in our conversation a number of times. I, I come from a Buddhist background of two parents that were practitioners, and that's so much of the framework that I see things. And when I hear you talk, you know, the questions you bring up of, of, of suffering and impermanence and sense of self, that they all feel very Buddhist to me often in our conversation. But, mm -hmm. but I, I, I know that you see it through a very different lens, which is through Christianity. But I I, I wonder the extent to which, I don't know, you, maybe you're a closeted Buddhist. That's my theory. No, I, I don't know. But I, let I, me tell you, guys, every, I've had people tell me I'm a closeted, closeted Jew. I've had people tell me I'm a closeted <laughs> Buddhist. I've had people tell me I'm a closeted Catholic. Uh -huh. I think, I think um, yeah, maybe 
uh, maybe I'm just very confused. Okay. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Well, I, I, I get a sense though that what, what you're interested in is perhaps what the heart of these other traditions are interested in, in too, no? Well, I think we make too much of the distinctions between religion. Like I, I, like I said, I think if you put the mystics of the traditions together, they, they is a, there is a real overlap between them. It's not, uh, it's not by any means the same. Um, I really like the theological notion of, I find it helpful, the theological notion of connecting religion to language um, that it comes out of Wittgenstein and and he's saying the, the thought of the thinking is that you know you may learn a second language um, but you'll always have an accent and and it won't be like your mother tongue you won't be able to write real poetry in it for example and um, even if you do write poems it, it won't be like your mother tongue and religions are something like that 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 you've got to use the the language that you were given. And the way to go deeper is not to blend somehow the religions, but to go deeper into your own tradition, to learn that language utterly. And, um, and I think there's some truth to that. The Dalai Lama said that actually, you know. Oh, really? Which yeah. was a surprise to many people. He has said that, instead of trying to convert everyone to be a Buddhist, he has said, actually, why don't you go deeper into the tradition that you were born into? And a lot of people might say, I, I have no interest in, let's say, the Christianity that's been presented to me. But I think that at the heart of a lot of these traditions, you find a lot of beauty and mysticism. But I, I think you're saying the same thing as, as, as he is there. Yeah, I, I'm very uncomfortable when uh, I'm approached by someone who wants to convert or has been led actually been led to convert by something i've written i i don't think of myself as evangelical at all in that way uh and in fact i was on a jewish podcast and put in that position and i said quite starkly i do not think that you should convert to christianity if your tradition is jewish and mm -hmm. um yeah so i i'm with the dalai lama there good company <laughs> <laughs> well i know we're just about out of time here and I, I'd love to, to to wrap this up with another reading of one that you feel that uh, that that you would like to share with us here on Life Examined. What what comes to mind? There is an essay that starts this book. I read from the very end of the book, so I'll read something from entry number one, the very beginning of the book. And this is an essay I wrote about teaching my kids to pray, or actually the essay wonders whether you should teach your kids to pray. And um, this is at the end of the, of the essay. I want only with my whole self to reach the heart of obvious truths. That's Anna Kamienska, near the end of the fractured, intense, diamond-like diaries that circle around and around the same obsessive concern, God. I know just what she means. The trouble, though, as her own life and mind illustrate, is that, just as there are simple and elegant equations that emerge only at the end of what seems like a maze of complicated mathematics, so there are truths that depend upon the very contortions they untangle. Every person has to earn the clarity of common sense, and every path to that one clearing is difficult, circuitous, and utterly, painfully individual. Here's an obvious truth. I am somewhat ambivalent about religion, and not simply the institutional manifestations which even a saint could hate, but sometimes, too many times, all of it, the very meat of it, the whole god leaped shebang. Here's another. I believe that the question of faith, which is ultimately separable from the question of religion, is the single most important question that any person asks in and of her life, and that every life is an answer to this question, whether she has addressed it consciously or not. As for myself, I have found faith to be not a comfort, 
but a provocation to a life I never seem to live up to, an eruption of joy that evaporates the instant I recognize it as such, an agony of absence that assaults me like a psychic wound. As for my children, I would like them to be free of whatever particular kink there is in me that turns every spiritual impulse into anguish. Failing that, I would like them to be free to make of their anguish a means of peace, for themselves or others, or both, with art or action, or both. Failing that, and I suppose, ultimately, here in the ceaseless machinery of implacable matter, there is only failure, I would like them to be able to pray, keeping in mind the fact that, as St. Anthony of the Desert said, A true prayer is one that you do not understand. It's been such a pleasure to be joined by Christian Wyman back on Life Examined. He's the author of the new book, Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair. And uh, Christian, thank you for for just being, being with us today and being with these ideas and and your art. I I really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me back, Jonathan. It's great talking to you. You've been listening to Life Examined on KCRW. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And now we'd love to hear from you. Did any of these poems or ideas resonate with you? Do you have any questions, feelings, or thoughts? Please join the conversation on our Facebook page. You can find a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. You can also connect with me directly on Instagram. You can find me at Jonathan W. Bastion, and there you'll find weekly reels and other content to stay connected to the show throughout the week. Make sure to keep an eye for the Midweek Reset, which drops every Wednesday in your podcast feed. And of course, this show comes to you every Saturday and live on Sundays on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian, your host. Once again, thanks for joining us on Life Examined. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you again soon. Take care.